Good evening. <clears throat> Brother Anton, could you come up here for a second? I want you to go back with me to the 1930s. And uh, <clears throat> stand here. I'm a fighter from uh, Louisville State. Name is C.D. Blaylock. He's six foot five. He has a very long reach. And he's a boxer. Uh, Anton is a little short, stocky fellow who goes to Mississippi State. Right. And so we're fighting, and it's the second round of the fight. And me, I cock back, and I'm going for a roundhouse knockout. But when I swing, Anton is smart. He steps into me, and so, let's pretend I'm six foot five. And the arm swings, his elbow hits the head, it turns around, <laughs> and he stumbles around and collapses and knocks himself out. Thank you, Anton. That's a good fight. But oftentimes, we are very similar to this boxer. We train, we do as much as we can to be in control, to have an advantage, and feel like we're going to win. But often we end up defeating ourselves because there comes a point in our self-sufficiency and our preparation and our desire to control our life that God has to step in and interfere. He must intervene. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, how should we respond when God has to step in and make radical changes to our nice and neat and compartmentalized lives? How do we respond when he messes things up? We'll get the answer tonight from uh, Jacob again, continuing the series on Jacob and Esau. Tonight, Esau is more in the background, uh, but he's definitely there. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. And as we continue learning about Jacob, we're going to see that, that we wrestle in our self-sufficiency. We're also going to see that God sometimes has to cripple us to develop dependency. And through this, our lives are changed eternally. Okay? So let's pray before I get started. God, we've come here tonight to hear from your word. Lord, we come in imperfect faith as imperfect people. But Lord, you still show us grace. Tonight, Lord, we ask that your spirit would work in our hearts to apply the, the truth from your word tonight, that we would be willing to let you mess up whatever you need to mess up so that we can walk in full faith for you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, let's read verses 22 through 24 tonight. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. 
you know, <laughs> it's actually, actually from the ESV, okay? Uh, verse, verse 22 says, the same night, we're talking about Jacob, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, the first point I want to draw out from this text is that very often our struggles and frustrations in life come from wrestling in our self-sufficiency. We wrestle in our self-sufficiency. And in order to understand this point, I want to catch us up on where Jacob is at this point. I love Jacob. Uh, if there's one character in the Bible that I can identify with and relate to the most, it's Jacob. No wonder, since my mother wanted to name me, she didn't want to name me Jacob. She wanted to name me, what did you want to name me, Mom? Jimmy. Jimmy, right? I was going to be a Jimmy. But Jimmy is a nickname for James. And my middle name is James. And James is the English version of the Latin Iacomus, which is from the Greek Iacobus, which is from the Hebrew Yaakov, which is Jacob. All right, so <clears throat> uh, I, I see myself as Jacob in many ways. Uh, he's a very comic character, and he stumbles around by his wits, right? And, but somehow things still work out for him. You can definitely see God is involved in his life in spite of himself. Um, and up to this point, we've seen, him, we've seen him wrestle. We've seen him wrestle with Esau, with his brother, in the womb, uh, even at birth, catching the heel. We've seen him wrestle with Esau twice for his birthright. Uh, he's outwitted his brother twice. Uh, Esau is not equipped in the intelligence department, apparently. Um, We've seen him wrestle with his parents, with his father, for the blessing. And then we see him wrestling. Later on, we see him wrestle with his wives. Oh, my goodness. Right? He wrestles with his wives. That's after he wrestles with Laban to get those wives. And he wrestles with Laban. Laban changes his wage ten times while he's there. And eventually, he just, he just leaves. Um, but the reason he left was because God had told him to go back to his homeland. God had told him, go back so that you can receive the blessing. And Jacob goes. But when he gets to the border of the promised land, at the river Jabbok, he realizes, oh yeah, Esau is still over there. And what does he remember? He remembers the last thing Esau said to me was that he was going to kill me. And so what does he do? In the, in the previous uh, parts of this chapter, we see him crying out to God, reminding God that God sent him here in the first place and that God had promised to give him a multitude of descendants. And that wouldn't really happen if I go there and Esau kills me as soon as I step in the land, right? So he's reminding God, hey, you sent me here, you take care of this. But immediately after he prays that prayer, he starts to divvy up a present for Esau from all of his goats and all the animals that he has. He decides, I'm, I, 
I know I just prayed to God, but I still need to work this out and make sure this happens. So he's still scheming. Um, and in that gift, he was actually giving away a part of his blessing. And that's not what God wanted for him. So we see that God had asked him to deliver him, but Jacob just can't resist doing something on his own to make sure God doesn't mess it up. All his life, Jacob has been using the gifts and the blessings of God to make sure he gets the gifts and blessings of God. And so now we come to the turning point in Jacob's life, and it centers on wrestling. The text makes it obvious that this story is about wrestling by the words that the author has chosen in this situation. He's being very intentional with these words. We have a Jacob. We have Jacob, which in Hebrew is Yaakob. Yaakob. The man who must cross the Jabbok, which is Yabok. Okay, so we have Yaakob and Yabok. But in order to do so, he must wrestle, which is Yeabek. So we have Yaakob, Yabok, Yeabek. They sound similar, right? The author is doing something. He's making it clear this is about Jacob and wrestling. And it's even further confirmed by the fact that this word for wrestle is never used anywhere else in the Bible, only in this passage. So we have to understand the key to wrestling for Jacob's walk and his life and ours. See, like Jacob, we are constantly acting in imperfect faith by trying to control our situation through self-effort. And just like Jacob, we find lots of ways to justify our struggle, right? Jacob's excuse was that he was afraid and that he was guilty. Uh, he knew he had done something to offend his brother, and so he's trying to cover his tracks and make up for his mistakes. And we do this too, right? We, we're afraid, so we think we need to have a backup plan to the backup plan to make sure uh, the situation happens, to make sure the situation works out for our benefit. But we end up frustrated when things don't go our way because we try so hard. We see this actually a lot in, uh, in, in perfectionists, right? They say they just want to do things well and we want to do things with excellence. Uh, but the truth is there's an underlying fear that God is not going to come through, that God is not going to take care of them. So they measure everything out right? Follow all the rules, plan everything perfectly. But when there's a bump in the road or plans get thrown off course, they get flustered and they get frustrated. And some can even lock up, unable to improvise at all to make a decision. Uh, I can't talk because I've struggled with this. I wrestle with this. Um, two weeks ago, uh, in the morning service, during the greeting time, we realized that, that the schedule had gotten thrown off somehow and there were going to be two songs back-to-back, -back, two special solos back-to-back, -back, which would have broken the 11th commandment, I'm sure, right? No service is supposed to have two songs in a row. Um, 
But during the greeting time, in about 10 seconds, we just, we figured it out and we said, hey, we'll just move one of those songs to after the sermon. And, and it turned out that it actually fit better. Um, but a while ago, a couple of years ago, that would have stressed me right out. I didn't, I don't want any, I don't, I want the schedule to go just how it's supposed to go. This takes this long. This takes this long. Don't throw me any curveballs in the, while I'm, sitting there waiting to get ready to preach, right? I just wanted everything to go as smoothly as possible. But God just, God just loves throwing those little curveballs at us. But in that situation, it worked out. And honestly, I can say I've, a lot of my life has been wrestling with God. Um, I feel like my whole year that I spent at Word of Life, I felt like that was me just wrestling with God's will for me. Uh, during the year, I even went so far as to arrange a job interview uh, in another city. And, and one of my friends asked me, um, so Terrence, if you get this job, are you, you're still going to come back and finish the school year, right? You're not going to take the job and quit school? I said, no way. He said, I, I will leave here in a second if I get a job. I said, I did not come to Word of Life to go into full-time ministry. And I think God laughed at that because after that, it was the next 10 years of full-time ministry. So God didn't care how much I was going to wrestle with him. Um, We also wrestle with him through our prayers. Another Word of Life story, and Nicholas is guilty of this, right? He'd be mad. <laughs> uh, see, we, we wrestle with God through our prayer. We put conditions on our prayers. We tell God, okay, God, if, this, if you want me to do this, you need to make this happen. This is what I want to happen in order to be sure that this is your will. Uh, Nicholas told me that, that he told God that in order for him to know that Tamson was who he was supposed to marry, she had to go to Word of Life with him. But that didn't happen. And somehow, I don't know, I guess, Nicholas, you might not be in the will of God. (laughs) Based on your criteria. Okay. (laughs) No, it doesn't matter. See, God brought them together because he was going to bless them independent of Nicholas's spiritual demands. And he does the same with us. But whether it's through perfectionism or prayers or, or our own impatience, we easily find ourselves injecting our own will and efforts into receiving blessing. I don't know if it's because we need to feel a sense of accomplishment or because we don't want to think that God failed us if we don't get what we want. Um, so we wrestle. But as Jacob finds out, we can only wrestle with our circumstances so much before God himself steps into the arena. So the second point we need to see is that sometimes God has to cripple us in order to develop dependency. God cripples us to develop dependency. Let's read verses 25 through 29. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now, there's a lot of odd stuff going on in this passage. There's a lot of questions that can pop into our mind uh, that, that are interesting, but ultimately we can make conjectures, but we're not going to know for sure. Questions like, who is this man? Is it an angel? Is it a Christophany? Is it an appearance of Christ before the New Testament? Is it a theophany? Is it God somehow taking the form of a man? Um, why couldn't he defeat Jacob in a wrestling match? A single man, it seems like, that seems odd. And why did he need to be finished by dawn? What was it about the daybreak that, that made him want to finish this wrestling match? Lots of interesting questions, but we won't let them distract us tonight from the main purpose of this passage. All right, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but not too much. So in this passage, it seems like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, there's a man, and he's wrestling Jacob, like out of the blue. And I think the author is doing that to us to let us know what Jacob felt like. Like all of a sudden, I'm alone, and now somebody's wrestling with me? Uh, what would you do if a stranger just out of nowhere just started wrestling with you, and they wouldn't let you go? Uh, depends on depends on if you knew who it was, right? Clearly, Jacob doesn't know who he's wrestling. It's dark, but he holds his own. Uh, Jacob clearly has some strength because this stranger doesn't prevail, and he wants to be done by morning. So what's he do? He has a game-changing move. The stranger touches the hip socket, and the tendon pops, and his hip comes out of socket. So why touch the hip? It's because that's where the strongest tendon in the body is. The intention is to touch Jacob and make him completely vulnerable and helpless right before he enters the promised land and about to face his greatest adversary. God's making it unfair for Jacob to get in there. He's just setting him up to show him that God is going to bless him without his help. God is going to be faithful to his promises and doesn't need Jacob to fill in the gaps. But even though Jacob can't fight anymore, he still has one MMA move, I'll call the squat, where he just basically grabs on and holds on for dear life and just drops all his weight on him and won't let him go. <clears throat> Jacob says, uh-uh, you ain't leaving me here with no sleep and all dirty and sweaty and a dislocated hip without something for my trouble. You need to bless me. 
So in return, the man blesses Jacob, but not with material things. He's going to change everything about him by changing his name. See, in, in ancient Near East culture, your name said a lot about you. It could communicate your family, it could communicate your religion, your character, and even what you're famous for. And we see this today, right? Uh, I was talking with my dad on Friday about the nicknames they give to people in Spanish Wells. Uh, you've got all kinds of, of nicknames. There's, how many of you know Broadshed? Anybody know Broadshed? All right. His real name is Hexton. But no one in the world would ever call him Hexton. His name is Broadshed. How do you get the name Broadshed? Because he would go out fishing and catch broadsheds. That's as simple as that. And then you got a guy named uh, Conker. All he does is he's a conker, right? He goes conking. But that's what, that's his name. And then you have uh, two brothers, Ivan and Robert, who came along around the time of World War II. And Robert was called Churchill. Can you guess what Ivan was called? Hitler. Can you guess which one is the more devious of the two? Right? So here we see God doing the same thing. <clears throat> he asks Jacob his name and makes him confess his nature. Now, the name Jacob could have a lot of meanings. Um, we see it meaning heel grabber, right, when he comes out of the womb. And they may have even given him that name affectionately, thinking that he would protect the heel of Esau, right? Someone who came up from behind to protect uh, th those in front. But as Esau found out, it, the word actually can sound like the word for deceiver or usurper. So, um, and that's probably how Jacob came to be defined. But God is going to change that name from a negative connotation to something Jacob can use boldly. Israel. God fights. Yes, you fought with God and man and prevailed. But every time you hear your name, you'll be reminded that God fights for you. This would also remind the nation of Israel as to how, how they came about, number one, and also number two, at the time this was written, how they were going to enter the land. Not through their effort, not because they were this great army, but because God was the one who was going to give it to them based on his grace. That name is a lot better than what it used to be, right? Imagine every time someone said your name, you heard the word jerk or thief or womanizer, right? But then you get a new name, not like Broadshed or Hitler, but something like warrior or courage or God fights for you. That can change a lot about how you see yourself. So the point of this passage is that God wants to do the same for us. See, because, because we have strength. We do. We have natural strength that God has gifted us in. 
And so often, that's what we operate in. We operate in our natural strength. But we also have no idea that so many of our attempts to control are just struggling against God himself. Because we have all these compartments of our life that that we think we can manage on our own, and I don't really want to trust God for it. God doesn't need to touch that. I can manage this section of my life. God for some things, but this part I want to be able to control. And so we spend our whole lives trying to improve ourselves so that we're self-sufficient. We don't need to rely on anyone. I'm not weak. But we get so good at it and we take it so far that we forget to rely on God for anything. We say we want God to change us, but oftentimes we've developed such a self-sufficient mindset that God has to hurt us. And so we try to avoid that. We use our strength to push back against God like Jacob, but we end up hurting ourselves because God goes to the extent of wounding us in order to make us dependent on him. Why does God want us dependent on him? So that we can learn that he is good. We don't have to doubt that. We can learn that his ways are better and that he is more valuable than any life we could manufacture for ourselves so that he gets the praise and the honor for it, not us. And so sometimes God has to take away our strength. And oftentimes in the area that we thought we were most secure or we found the most satisfaction in. Sometimes God takes away our job to show that he provides. Sometimes he takes away our health to show that he is the one who gives life and strength. Sometimes our health goes away because we are striving so hard through stress or physical breakdown. Sometimes he takes away a relationship that meant more to us than anything else to show us that he is more valuable. And sometimes our pride and our reputation has to take a hit to show us that Jesus is the only perfect person. And he is where our righteousness comes from, not how good we are. But also just like Jacob, even though God does hurt us, it is intended to help us. God is injuring us to develop a lingering dependency on him and a change in character that is permanent. It's like when a doctor has to re-break a bone that isn't healing property, properly. Excuse me. He has to break it because it wasn't healing right. And when he breaks it and resets it, it's on the path to growth and greater strength. The encounter with God is so severe, it is severe, that we become people who know that everything is by God's grace. So instead of being known by our old character, 
We can display new tendencies of grace and dependency and reliance instead of works and independence. We will know that if we receive something good, it's because the source was God, not our ability because God took it away. And finally, we see that the wound affects us eternally. The wound affects us eternally. Let's read verses 30 through 32. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face. Peniel means face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. No longer is Jacob a scared man. He realizes that he has come face to face with God and lived. So now what is Esau? He can come face to face with Esau and know that God will deliver him. Jacob is now emboldened instead of timid. And the wound is still there. The wound is evident to everyone. There was no doubt something unforgettable had happened to Jacob that night. He had an obvious limp that stuck with him. And this event was so significant that future generations of Israelites wouldn't eat that tendon on an animal. His encounter with God, his wounding by God, is recognized by future generations. See, when God touches you deeply, sometimes painfully, it sticks around. Not only does it change you permanently, but other people will notice and be affected. But when other people see your hurt, and they see you come out of it with a greater love and a greater dependency on God, that you value Him above everything else that you lost. They can't help but recognize it. And when we rejoice through our loss, it draws other people in. It makes them curious about God and why you think He's so worthy. And you get to give an answer for that. So let's review what God's Word has taught us tonight. First, we realize that we wrestle in self-sufficiency oftentimes because that's our natural mode of operation. We see that God cripples us to promote and develop dependency. And then finally, we see that God's wounding of us results in him being elevated in our lives and others being able to witness that impact. So if we're going to try to live out this message, this living in active faith instead of being independent, what can we do? Obviously, we should examine our lives first, right? And see if, see if there's 
any uh, self-will and self-sufficiency going on that God has to hurt us. We can recognize it, and we can save ourselves a lot of pain. John Calvin did this. He was one of the great reformers, probably one of the top five theologians in the history of Christianity. Pastor Lee, you agree with me? You agree, okay. He, uh, he was one of the reformers. The Reformation had started, and he was on his way to Strasbourg from Paris. But he had to take a detour through Geneva. And if you know the history of the Reformation, you know Geneva was uh, the hub of John Calvin and, and his ministry during the Reformation. But it almost didn't happen um, because he was only going to stay one night. He, he only wanted to stay one night in Geneva. But there was another reformer there named William Farrell. And Farrell urged him to stay in Geneva. But Calvin refused. And there was, there was arguing and there was nothing that he could say to convince Calvin to stay. And finally, Farrell jumped up and shouted at the brilliant young scholar, and this is what he said. He said, you are simply following your own wishes, and I declare in the name of Almighty God that if you refuse to take part in the Lord's task in this city, God will curse the quiet life you want for your study. And that shook Calvin. And later he would write, I felt as if God in heaven had laid his mighty hand on me to stop me from my course. I did not continue my journey. It probably saved Calvin a lot of trouble. I wish we were as aware and mature as Calvin. I am not. I don't know about you. I wish we were. Prevention is the best medication. Unfortunately, we still wrestle. And sometimes we do get wounded. So tonight I want us to consider when we are wounded, to resist the temptation to resent the wound, but instead to receive the wound. Receive the wound. Instead of getting bitter or angry at God, we can look ahead at the fruit that it is intended to produce in our life. And others who are watching we can welcome the wound for the purpose it was designed for, not to enjoy pain by any means, but to see that God is taking something away from us to develop a dependency and total trust in him, to free us from the tyranny of self-sufficiency and to receive the blessings of God freely and in a way that honors him above ourselves. Uh, yesterday was the first time Pastor Rick Warren has preached since the suicide of his son. How many of you heard that Rick Warren's son committed suicide? It was four months ago. Yesterday was the first time he preached since then. Uh, his son wrestled with mental illness his whole life with depression. Um, and four months ago, he did take his own life. But yesterday, at the first time, since, since it happened, his church was packed. Packed to overflowing. They had three tents of overflow. And people wanted to see how he's going to respond to this tragedy. 
How is he going to respond to this wounding? He says he's now on a mission to remove the stigma from the church about mental illness. Right? He's, he's felt this wound. He's received it. He's felt the pain of it. And now he's moving to impact thousands of others because he knows God is most valuable. This is what he said. He said, God wants to take your greatest loss and turn it into your greatest life message. And for us, how we apply this personally, this may mean confessing to God that there are areas that, that we have resisted surrendering to him. Because we don't like to admit it. We like to pretend we're super spiritual and, oh no, I trust God for everything. But that's not really the reality for us. So we admit that, and then we can transition that same prayer into telling God that, that we accept it, and we accept his will for us, no matter how painful, so that, like Jacob became identified with God, we can be identified by God through those who are watching. i close with a quote by theologian J. Gresham Machen, who was born on this day in 1881. He's not alive anymore, but he was born this day. This is what he says. If we value God for his own sake, then the loss of other things will draw us all the closer to him. We shall then have recourse to him in time of trouble as to the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. If here and now we have the one inestimable gift of God's presence and favor, then all the rest can wait till God's good time. So this week, let's, let's walk in dependency. Dependency on Christ and freedom from the struggle of self-reliance so that others may be impacted by it. Let's pray. God, we come and we confess that we have parts of our life that we think we can hold on to just fine. Lord, we ask you to invade those parts of our life. And it is scary to ask you to do that because you may have to hurt us. You may have to take away something that we cherish in order to turn our heart to you, to remind us of your supreme value and worth. But Lord, there is joy in seeing you for who you are. Father, I pray that we would experience that joy even through loss. Lord, help us to just turn those areas of our life over to you willingly before it gets to that point. But God, you are good. You are gracious and you still bless us. You are patient with us, as Sister Denise sang about. You are better to us than we could ever imagine. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. 
you are gracious. So, Lord, we thank you for that and for who you are. Lord, show us. Show us how we can. How we can prove to others that you are more valuable to us. And through our, through our joy in you, others would come to know you and others would come to see the worth, the value, the honor and praise that you're worthy of. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.